Welcome to Restart Radio, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we do not focus on the new shiny, shiny things to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events here in London are just the beginning. My name is Ugo Vallauri from the Restart Project, and I'm joined today by longtime Restart volunteer and IT team lead, Dave Lukes. Hi. Welcome, Dave. In this episode, we have a special interview with Peter Mui, the founder of the Fix-It Clinic in California, which is a movement quite close to our hearts, doing work very much similar and complementary to what we do here with our pop-up repair events. But first, I wanted to uh, give a special announcement, um, a happy birthday to Restart. This month, we are celebrating the Restart Project's fifth birthday, fifth anniversary since the very first uh, Restart event. Happy birthday, indeed. Yay! And it's a great time, uh, if you'd like to, and if you can, to support our work with a donation. Uh, you can head over to the restartproject.org for uh, full details. But uh, let's get back into the main reason we're here. So in two weeks ago, I was visiting California and I had the opportunity to meet with Peter Mui, who's been uh, a great pillar of the community repair movement uh, out there. And uh, we had a chance to go over a number of topics that are exciting and of interest uh, to all of us here at Restart. And uh, so I'll just uh, let play the interview and then we can comment on it. I first asked Peter how he actually started with this work. My entire life I've been someone who's taken stuff apart. Even now I say the core demographic for Fix-It Clinic is the precocious teenager. It's the kid in the family who inherits all the broken stuff the family has and he or she can be the hero if they can get the toaster oven working again. And so I was that teenager. Actually, I started much younger. I can, I, I, when I was a small, small child, my father gave me a Baby Ben alarm clock, uh, which is this me totally mechanical alarm clock that had broken, and gave it to me to take apart. And I, of course, I never got back together again, but, but my whole childhood, I was always encouraged to, to tinker with things. And so when I moved to Berkeley, there's a, a, a great old electronics store called Al Lasher's Electronics on University Avenue in Berkeley. And I used to go in there and buy stuff. It's, uh, and I'm friends with the owners. And I had this idea that we should do this repair event in there where, where we could take the things apart and say, oh, you need this capacitor or this resistor. Go across and get it from the counter and buy it, and we'll put it in. And I, the original title was Beyond All Hope, Appliance and Electronics Repair. Nice. And, uh, and, but they, they didn't really have any, much interest in doing this in the store for any number of reasons. And then uh, another person came in and, and presented them with the same idea, so they put the two of us together, and we started to, we, we held the very first event where there were only three fix-it coaches, and, and not at the store, we held it at UC Berkeley, and, and it's sort of taken off from there. And, and when was that? So the very first fix-it clinic was at UC Berkeley's Albany Village at, uh, on December 1st, 2009. And now it's 2017, and we've just finished Fix-It Clinic 217 at Castro Valley Library last Saturday. 
So our most successful satellite is Minneapolis and its environs, Hennepin County Environmental Services. And the woman who runs them there is an employee of the county, Nancy Lowe. But Nancy talked to me extensively before she started. And then for her very first event, two of us from here actually flew to Minneapolis expressly to help them get off on the right foot and, and impart the DNA. And they've held uh, over 50 fixed clinics there. So 25% of the fixed clinics have been held in the Minneapolis area. We also have a very successful satellite in Boulder, Colorado. We've uh, run a number of events now in Orange County, Southern California, San Diego. They're, they're holding a bunch of events. We keep expanding more and more. But it, no, not, I have not personally been to all 217 events. <laughs> that's very so that's a large group. And uh, it's interesting that they started um, in California, but now they're expanding, in a sense, helping other groups do the same that we did with giving them uh, the confidence to go out there and, and get started with running events. And isn't it fascinating that uh, Peter mentions the inspiration coming from an old uh, hardware store where you <laughs> could get the parts? I mean, we're seeing all of these stores slowly disappearing also from the high street here in London. Yeah, unfortunately, I have to admit, most of the time when I buy parts, it's online these days simply because I can't buy them locally, which is a great pity. And part of that is because of the complexity of the devices we see these days. In the old days, there were a lot of con parts, nuts, bolts, rubber hoses, things like that for your electrical devices. And they still are to some extent. Fixing a vacuum cleaner is a lot easier than fixing a mobile phone. you know. And I suppose in a way that's just a, a part of life, and I suppose we should be grateful that we can fix them at all. But it is sad to see the demise of the old hardware shop, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So I've asked Peter how they actually run the events and what's different and similar in the way they operate compared to our pop-up restart parties. Okay, so I think it, between you and the restart project, and by the way, I think of sort of this very close kinship to, to you guys that, that of, the, of the other repair community repair events I've seen out there, you guys are the closest model to ours. Uh, between you and the repair cafes and us, we have validated the hypothesis that if you offer free repair service, everybody comes, okay? And you can fix all sorts of things, but the problem is it's overwhelming. And that if we just fix things at our events one by one, it's not going to have enough of an impact on the planet and on people's, consume, on people's mindsets and attitudes around consumption. Actually, I have recently added to this, I'm concerned that we are actually reinforcing the existing consumption mindset by continuing to repair things for people for free because they think, oh, manufacturers can just keep producing low quality goods because, and I, consumers will keep buying them because they know they can come to events like ours and get them fixed for free, so what the heck, you know? And so, so I'm, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm discouraging. I'm changing all of my wording and the phraseology and the positioning of our events more and more. I'm trying to discourage people who just want free repair from showing up, and trying to encourage people who are naturally inquisitive and curious and 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 outgoing and want to disseminate these skills throughout their community beyond our events. And those are the people I'm really trying to target at this point. No, so I can be clear about this. It's not about skill or capability. It's really about attitude, all right? It, I mean, yes, I'm totally okay if someone's intimidated, slightly intimidated, but, but if they're naturally inquisitive, they're naturally curious, that's the part I want. 
I think I'll, I'll give a, a, a firm example and we'll leave it at that. We participated on a very early Palo Alto repair cafe. I think the, not the second one. We, a whole bunch of us carpooled over there. And I was in charge of the gating of people coming in at the front. And it was, there were people lined up and, and to, to wait their turn. But this couple pulled up in their Range Rover and they said, oh, can we just drop off our microwave and we'll come and pick it up later once you've got it fixed. <laughs> and I was like, it doesn't work that way. And they were just indignant. You know, they were just like, oh, what good is this if you're not going to fix our thing? And they, you know, they, they drove off in a huff or they, they were just surly all afternoon waiting their turn with their microwave, not wondering why they had to stand here. You know, they weren't going to do anything anyway. So I'm really trying to encourage that engagement. I mean, in an ideal fix-it clinic, the, the role of the fix-it coach and the participant blur and become one thing at the, at the, at the fix-it clinic. I'm trying, and, and ideally, the participants over time return as fix-it coaches themselves. I'm now trying to position the events as gatherings or parties of fix-it coaches where the general public's invited to crash the party, okay, and, and try to do what they can to sort of vie for, vie for our attention. No, that, that's fair enough, and it's really something we, we're trying as much as possible to, to inspire and, and participants to our events. It, it, Dave, so you've been running many events uh, yourself with the Hackney Fixers. And w what's your take on this issue of uh, getting people to participate as much as possible and becoming very involved and, in fact, at times leading on the repair? Yeah, um, it's a problem. And some people do think that it's a free repair service. And we try to explain that it's not. Um, but also you have to be fair to those people who, for instance, for whatever reason, very old people physically can't undo screws. Let's be blunt about that. Or people who have physical disabilities. So you have to be liberal in your interpretation of what participation means. Also, you know, very young people, whatever. And I disagree slightly with Peter's theory that we're encouraging consumerism because by repairing something, they're not going to buy another one. So you are encouraging long-term consumerism, okay? And we all agree there's nothing wrong with stuff. It's throwaway stuff that's the problem. And if people want to repair their stuff, this is a good thing, period. I guess what he's trying to refer to is if it's obvious that there is a free repair service, in a sense, at it's a good excuse to continue paying little attention to how repairable or throwaway oh, yeah. certain products are. But that's, that's a fair point, uh, I think. And obviously this links uh, with what are the ultimate motivations. And I think he had some very interesting point about what makes uh, his coaches excited about uh, being involved in that community. See, I've distilled it down to a core motivation. I, at least for my fixed coaches, they do it for the respect and admiration of their perceived peer group, which is the other fixed coaches. Okay, it is, you know, they, yes, they like to do it for the general. They like to show off to the general public like they know, but they especially like to show off to the other fixed coaches what they know. Right. So I'm creating these gatherings in the spirit of what I said earlier. I really am creating these gatherings of fixed coaches. And to, you know, for them to sort of like work work with each other, and they enjoy each other's company, and I encourage them to fraternize and to to be good friends outside of 
the, the, fixed, the fixed clinic itself. When we have an event, I try to make sure that the sponsor gives us a lot of food and stuff. So even as we wind down the event, we can hang around and have party. You know, we can party and hang out with each other after the general public, you know, has has, has left for the most part. This <laughs> concept is quite similar to how we frame our special skill shares, I guess, for for volunteers to try to get them to motivate and and just learning from each other. Yeah, yeah, and. Whether we like it or not, human nature is that people are at least slightly competitive. All of us are. You know, we like, although I would say to some extent, my personal motivation is I like to help people anyway. And also, it's a challenge, not necessarily a challenge against other fixers, but a challenge is between me and the thing that doesn't want to get fixed. You know, if there's a gadget there, I want to fix it. And it's a personal insult to me if I can't fix it. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's because of age or whatever that I don't really like to show off to the other fixers. And I kind of enjoy it when they show off to me, really. You know, it's fun to see them say, hey, I know how to do this now. Yeah, And it's more like a collaborative learning process, I guess. One of the beauties of our restart parties is the number of times you'll see people say, has anybody got this? You know, there's a particular tool or a particular, you know, has anybody got any super glue? Has somebody got, you know, a particular kind of glue, you know, fixing tape? tools, whatever. And similarly, somebody will sometimes walk over to me and say, Dave, have you seen anything like this before? And sometimes I just need to give them a clue and say, oh, it's like that thing you fixed last time, and so on. So, yeah, there's a lot of collaboration. Excellent. You're listening to Restart Radio on Resonance 104.4 FM. We are here playing back an interview that I recorded with Peter Mui, founder of the Fixit Clinic in California and across the United States. And I asked Peter, um, what is the situation in the United States when it comes to commercial repairs? Because Part of the problem that people want stuff to be fixed for free at community events has to do with the lack of other options available. And we've started mapping repair businesses in part of London as a way to provide an extra layer of suggestions and support, especially because sometimes people can't necessarily learn all the steps and they want mm -hmm. a reliable solution. And uh, his take on this uh, was not as positive as we've experienced, at least in part. Well, the resources that you talk about in the UK for independent repair, that's totally non-existent in the United States at this point, except for some leftover vestiges of high-end audio for people who have these high-end audio tube amps and things from the 1960s and 70s that they want to repair and are willing to pay top dollar. Everything else is gone. And... The whole manufacturing infrastructure doesn't support it. There's this classic thing where Nikon is refusing to make the repair parts available for their digital cameras anymore. So if there were independent camera shops, repair shops, they're going out of business. We need to change something else. I mean, the more and more I do this, the more militant I get that something is fundamentally broken about the way we're doing consumption on the planet. And we need to sort of get back to 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 core principles around this. So so there is no alternative right now for us to send people to, and you know what what is the right answer here? And that's what I'm trying to figure out. Uh, I'll give another a very short example where someone came at a, came to a fix a clinic with 
two brand new toaster ovens exactly the same. And what happened was the first one failed under warranty and he called the manufacturer and the manufacturer said, oh, we don't even want it back. We'll just ship you another one. And, and he, you know, and so he has two of them now and he wanted to understand how the first one went bad. But that kind of, an, that, I mean, the fact that we are not really paying the true cost of the item when we buy it, something's, something is, something's fundamentally broken there. And, I, and, I, and I'm looking at how we can address that root issue more and more at every event. Absolutely, and you know, the story you just shared is similar to stories we hear. I've heard story of someone that had a broken uh, coffee grinder and they called the manufacturer within warranty. Again, they didn't want it back. They just shipped another one. You know, like at times it makes you wonder, like you can just get another one even if it's not broken. I mean, because they don't even requiring proof that it's broken in any way. And certainly there's something about the circularity of all of this that just is broken massively. You know, people obsess around the, the circular economy, but, uh, and it's a big term, but actually we see a lot of waste and stuff going to waste where perhaps 90% of that product was still fine. If only you could have changed a tiny bit. Right, so the emphasis on, remanu on um, recycling, which I call demanufacturing, as opposed to what we do, which is we try to return it to service for its originally intended use. Okay, that's the most highest value thing you can do with the item. Taking it apart, even if it's well, well designed for deconstruction, for demanufacturing, that still gives it a lower total energy value from my perspective than putting it back into service for what you originally intended for. Now, if it was something stupid and junky, to begin with, that's another issue that we need to, to, to think about in terms of how we create, how we create products for consumers. But, but that's what we need to do. And at this point, for example, at Fix-It Clinic, we've, we've pretty much decided we can fix every toaster. Pretty, I mean, pretty much we can fix every toaster. And yet we continue to churn toasters out in manufacturing over and over again because they, they're, they're so, they, they don't have any durability. And, and you know, I'd love to figure out some way to just sort of look and say, okay, let's not make any more toasters. We've got enough toasters on the planet now. Let's just keep the ones we have here now in service you know, and, and going. Well, we've had bad luck with some of them where you can't even change uh, the heating element or maybe the spare heating Dave, element. Dave, um, you have experienced fixing toasters a lot at Restart Parties. Oh, yes. <laughs> And it doesn't always work. No, no, that's often a, a toaster, if you think about it, is basically a great big heater. It is, well, sorry, uh, it's a specific heater. It's the size of a slice of bread. And it consists of bits of wire that heat up and they burn your piece of bread and that's it. And there's some timers and other stuff. Now, if the timers and other stuff have failed, then yes, sometimes there's a chance. Also, one thing is they have springs on them to pop the toast back up. You know, those can be replaced and so on. But... The actual heating elements aren't usually replaceable, and this is one thing where I won't mention any brand names, but certain the better-known older brands are much more repairable because they will actually sell you a new set of heating elements, whereas the mass-market brands in general, unless you're really good with soldering and you've got some high-temperature solder, etc., etc., which is not stuff you would find at a typical restart party, you can't repair a broken heating element. Absolutely. I'll do Peter... Aside from the interview, was telling me that in some cases they've been able to 
actually repair the heating element and so give it a second lease of life. Oh, yeah, that in theory is possible, but I'm slightly worried about safety in that case because presumably you'd have to join these two pieces of wire together and make sure they don't melt again under extremely high temperatures. So I think that's pretty specialist, really. And one of the concerns that we uh, share and I wanted to check with uh, Fixit Clinic about is whether products are becoming more and more difficult to repair and what if we can't even repair things in the future and uh, so I asked about this uh, to Peter The challenge now becomes how do we change their consumer mindset to start to think critically about how you purchase things going forward and what sorts of items and there's not good data to inform that so yeah our plan is over time is to try and figure out how we transform our events into events that our data collection events for the information that would empower consumers in the future to think about what sorts of items, the quality of the items, uh, and not just quality in terms of durability or maintainability or serviceability, but also in terms of, do I really need a um, electric potato peeler to you know in my in my house or something like that? You know, what, what sort of sorts of uh, uh, tchotchkes that people buy now that are, are just goofy items that you may get for Christmas, but use it once or twice and then it sits deep in a drawer before you throw it away whether it's broken or not i guess one of the concerns is that uh, we are seeing products that are potentially less and less repairable being brought to our events partly because they're smaller and smaller and part you know with the increasing number of connected devices or iot devices so are you seeing similar trend? Are you fearing that we might not even be able to hold the fix-it clinics or restart parties in the future? So we have successfully done uh, almost surface, surface mount component level repairs at fix-it clinic. We have a reputation for being excellent with high-tech consumer electronics, and we're pretty good at it. We have done Xbox 360 red light of, I forget what of it's death. Called. Yeah, red light of death repairs. Um, we've done some pretty heroic repairs at, at Fix-It Clinic. Or, so I'm feeling like we have the skills to continue to do them. I, I just, we, we shouldn't have to. <laughs> I think that's the main thing I'm, um, I'm getting to. We should be able to get back to, to a company like Microsoft and say, you should, you should stop the production line because your devices are failing prematurely. And, and that's what we see as well. In a sense, we'd like to, people to learn uh, and, and not have to buy uh, products that are designed in a non-repairable or durable way. And we'd like to see manufacturers actually change their mind in this respect. What's like a case that you can remember where you really thought that something uh, really could have been easily designed in a way that was less throwaway? Data? Oh, plenty of them. Um, there was a, a room heater that somebody bought in and it was partially just that it was shoddily manufactured. You know, it was um, what happened was there was an overheat detector which relied on a basically on a piece of metal bending under heat, and it had to be rebent because it didn't last very long. Um, so partially, it's just poor quality manufacturing. If you manufacture something well, to some extent, that makes it more repairable. You know, if the components are solid and robust, so you can. Uh, you can demanufacture, as he put it. The, if you can take something apart easily, then it it's 
by, by definition, easier to repair. So better quality manufacturing and maybe in an ideal world, of course, all spare parts would be available. You know? And at the moment, it's quite the opposite. It's very difficult to find spare parts, partially due to the fact that even if the spare parts exist, how do you find you know, that particular nut and bolt, that particular heating element or whatever? It doesn't have a number on it. There's no good quality equipment often has a complete parts list with it. Cheap stuff doesn't. Absolutely. And I guess one point where this comes to a potential future that could be different is in what advances in manufacturing could could mean for future repair and future making. And Peter has a pretty dream version of what this could be like. I think there are broader trends, certainly now that we have this democratization of manufacturing, manufacturing on demand, local local sourcing of materials and tools and techniques. It's possible that in the future, a toaster uh, won't come from China via Amazon, but instead a digital file will be sent to the next town over to make a toaster for you. Uh, it could be very highly custom, but it would incorporate all the latest techniques and tools and things that we understand about how to manufacture a good durable toaster and it gets delivered to you that afternoon what do you think about that dave it's an interesting idea i think it's a bit utopian because again that's kind of encouraging consumerism isn't it you know do we want everybody to be able to churn out more toasters you know i'm bored today i'll have a different color toaster you know that kind of thing so i would say yes it's nice in in principle, but again, that doesn't being able to manufacture things easy does not encourage durability. In some ways, I know this sounds perverse. If things were slightly more difficult to manufacture, more expensive, people would take more care of them. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd say that actually Peter doesn't believe in just producing as many things as we possibly can. And in fact he has very strong views about how we should help people think twice be before disposing of products. Yeah. And and do you find that participants to your events come also with the desire to understand how they should shop next time they're buying a product or we aren't there yet. The closest I could say that we do is uh, we've been asked to hold Fixit Clinics in conjunction with hazardous waste collection or to be able to collect the e-waste when we can't fix something. And we refuse to do that because we want the consumer to meditate on the item and, and what it meant to them and to actually think about how they have to s uh, properly dispose of this item at this point. And yes, many of them will drop it off in an e-waste bin and, and be done with it. But, you know, hopefully some of them will take the next step and think, well, we, am I really helping by, you know, what's going to happen to it once it goes in this e-waste bin? Does it really get deconstructed into its smaller parts so that they can be reused? Or does it just get ground up, which is what really happens, and end up in the landfill anyway or end up incinerated? Dave, it, what happens at a Hackney Fixers event when something cannot be fixed? Um, well, we again, we don't have e-waste bins at our events. Um, that's, to be honest, is mostly practical rather than a sort of idealistic. I, I sympathise with this idea, but on the other hand, if something is totally not repairable, and it's obviously not repairable, then unless it's a high-value item, what is the alternative to recycling it? So, and deliberately making it hard for people to recycle seems like the wrong thing to do. Well, I guess the point is to try to help people reflect that 
components or parts of that product could still be valuable. And certainly the system as it's organized right now doesn't allow for that flexibility to reuse the screen in a laptop that is otherwise completely gone. Yeah. Uh, but we need a change in the understanding of how the whole system operates to that end. Here's another little thought, though. One thing we've encouraged people to do, if they have an item that's high value but is not practically repairable for whatever reason, we encourage people to think about selling it on one of the various auction sites available. Because often you'll find high-level, high-end hi-fi, for instance, people want to buy those things just for the components. Absolutely. One last question I had for Peter was, what does it mean to be doing his work uh, right and near the Silicon Valley area. So let's see what he had to say about that. I wonder, what does it mean to be doing this work specifically in the San Francisco Bay area and near where all of these big manufacturers are based, although the manufacturing is not based anywhere near here. Mm. Ah, but the design is. Yeah. And so, you know, you look at every Apple product, it's designed in California by Apple. And as more and more universities and colleges lead with design thinking, and that, that we are critically trying to think about how you design from the get-go for durability, maintainability, serviceability. We, you know, it, it, if if that future of engineering that I that I just that I just mentioned earlier about things will be sourced locally from digital files, then it's even more critical because this is the cutting edge. This is where stuff is happening here in the center of tech. So, so if we can influence it here at the fountainhead, at the, at the, at the, at the beginning of the stream, then, then it'll have a ripple effect all the way down to the consum end consumer who's, who's choosing to buy something. Great. Well, it's excellent to hear that uh, the Fixit Clinic are very much in line with us in terms mm -hmm. of what we see the need for future change, not just reach into consumers, but with to designers and to manufacturers. This is all we have time for uh, for today. Thanks, Dave, for taking part. Thank you. There are two upcoming restart parties happening today, in fact. One at Archer Academy in Finchley right now and one this evening in Uxbridge. You can find more information on these and all other upcoming events at therestartproject.org. Thanks for listening.